Obviously, Doctor, you've never been a 13-year-old girl. I Okay, let's do it. Um, welcome back to Hate Fiction. I'm here today with a very special guest. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, hi, I'm C, also known as Not Your Wife on Twitter. I'm well, very glad to talk to you today. Yeah, welcome. Welcome on Hate Fiction. Um, I brought you on here today to talk about two wonderful books and one wonderful movie, The Bell Drawer and Girl Interrupted. So what do you think of them? Yeah, um, I first read The Bell Jar and Girl Interrupted when I was like 13 or 14. And so my experience with them then is very different than it is now. Um, I mostly read them because I saw them all over Tumblr and I was a huge Tumblr girl back in the day. And I yeah. just really, I really <laughs> ate it up as like an angsty adolescent. And now I mostly just feel nostalgic towards them. I mean, the bell jar is still so beautifully written. I mean, Sylvia Plath's a great writer, but it just doesn't hit the same anymore. Right. Yeah, I was just going to say, because <laughs> I also read them when I was like 13, 14, like back in like middle school, like eighth grade. And I reread them for this episode. And like Girl Interrupted especially, just like I now see it in, in a completely different light. Because mm -hmm. the way that Girl Interrupted, like the book is written is very like, it's actually very sarcastic and like almost like she, she throughout the whole book, she basically makes fun of herself when she was younger. And mm -hmm. when I was like 13, I did not get that at all. Like when I was like 13, I just ate up the whole thing. And I was like, you know, like I'm just like her and I'm so special and I'm so sad. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and there's also this one scene in the movie. I don't know if you remember it where, um, god what was her name valerie like the the main nurse is talking to Susanna. Mm -hmm. she like Susanna like takes a bunch of pills and she like basically drops her into like an ice cold bath and she's like you know you're such a spoiled little brat like mm -hmm. you're just driving yourself insane i remember watching the film for the first time and being like oh you know like a mental health professional should never say something like that and now i'm like yeah well actually she was right she's right all along <laughs> yeah she was i just rewatched it too recently and i was like yeah that's kind of how a lot of girls were i think like, I don't know. There is a like point to where they definitely do have a mental illness, but at the same time, it's like you do all of this stuff and you romanticize it so much and you just, you do drive yourself insane. Like it becomes your personality almost. Right, absolutely. But I think it kind of like, I guess it starts with some real like feelings of like sadness and, you know, discomfort and feeling that you don't really belong in this world, which I think are natural for like any teenager, right? Especially girls, mm -hmm. because puberty for girls are always, is always so traumatic. But like, yeah. I think like at the end of the day, like when you sort of indulge yourself in those feelings and you, you know, romanticize them, as you said, and like, you know, like sort of define yourself through these feelings, right? It's like, um, it's kind of like the article I sent you. Um, the bell jar is like an accessory in movies, mm -hmm, and like yeah. the way, and like the way that it's often used as movies is like a prop that's meant to show, basically, like the inner, you know, feelings of like female characters. And it's like, and I guess like it sort of becomes like yeah, like a crutch for a lot of people where you know they define their personalities through these like different pieces of mediums or these like you know books, and then you romanticize it to that extent where. It just, you know, 
that sadness actually like becomes you and you can't yeah. escape it anymore. You've driven yourself completely mad. Definitely. I mean, it becomes like a whole aesthetic. Like I was on Tumblr back in the height of it, like towards 2012, 2014. And like girls being depressed was a whole aesthetic and it still is on Pinterest and on Twitter. And it becomes very much like this difference between a girl with depression and a depressed girl. Like I feel like they're very two different things. Yeah, totally. It's like the sad girl thing, which is like, yeah, yeah as you yeah. said, it's, it's, it's a whole aesthetic, which I think is interesting that like, you know, and now like the sad girl thing, um, like the way the bell jar scene is kind of like, is this revolutionary piece of medium, right? This like revolutionary mm-hmm. book that like, you know, changed the way that we think about female pain and like female struggles and whatever. But like now it's become so like normalized and trivialized that like, it's just like a market niche. And like mm-hmm. all those like aesthetic, like any aesthetic framework is ultimately like a market niche. And so now it's like, it really has no like revolutionary quality to it anymore, almost. Yeah. I mean, I definitely appreciate it for what it did, especially for women with psychological problems back in the day. I mean, you didn't really get to hear their side of it. And then like Sylvia Plath came out with that. And then like, Susanna Kaysen and Elizabeth Wurzel, like she really paved the way for a lot of women to speak about what they were going through. Right, totally. But I think now it's almost like, like because it's become so normalized, that pain almost seems like pointless to a certain extent because now now it's just like whenever you hear someone talk about their mental struggles yeah the first thing you think of is like confessional culture and like elizabeth wartzel and like how all of that can be commodified right so it's like it's no longer just like this private feeling their girls get to indulge in and like live their experiences through but it's like it's really just like another thing that's been like yeah like commodified and sold back to us as like a way of living through our experiences yeah i mean for sure it's definitely like it's so public nowadays. And like you see all these posts, like we're done normalizing things, like stop normalizing. We've gone too far into a point. I get it. Like people are just so open in ways that seems like it almost comes off as fake sometimes. Like they're doing it for clout, you know, online. Right. Totally. But it's like, um, it's kind of like the girl interrupted syndrome, which is like yeah. almost like completely not related to the movie or the book. It's just basically like when girls get really into the idea of being a manic pixie dream girl and like Mm -hmm. they sort of like form their whole identity around the idea of like being different and special and having like you know like non-mainstream interests and whatever and it's like yeah it just becomes like trivial and (laughs) boring for sure I mean there's a whole brand of it it is it's on brand now really no you're totally right it is a brand and it's also like I think the the great thing about like books like The Bell Jar or Girl Interrupted or like Prozac Nation is that like they're very they're all very confessional they're all very personal but the way that the experience of depression and sadness and like female mental illness and madness and all those things like get turned into like basically just like um like mood boards and like yeah. <laughs> you know like yeah, like aesthetic collages and stuff like it's no longer personal it's become like so 
depersonalized and so like decentralized that anyone like any girl of any experience can relate to it because mm-hmm. you know it's like you'll have like um like a picture of the bell jar right next to like an iced coffee or whatever and it's like what what is that supposed to mean like what is what does that represent exactly mm-hmm. right so it's like the personal has turned into just like the universal and it doesn't mean anything yeah i mean i think that's true for basically everything because of the internet and like part of me wonders if sylvia plath had the internet like maybe not her in particular but would like that whole group of depressed girls would they somehow exist like is this just the medium that was needed to create this whole system i guess i mean i guess like the whole sad girl archetype has done a lot for um you know like the feminist narrative because it's like especially like because it was published by ted hughes after her death because you know Mm -hmm. because um because like, I was reading this article this morning um, about how like before he published the book, he also burned a bunch of her journals, which basically made him look really guilty, like he was trying to hide something. And Ted yeah. Hughes is a very interesting figure because uh, two of his wives gassed themselves, which is like, first of all, an unusual way to die. And it's very, it's very unusual for two women married to the same man to die the same way. But like, um, so it's like, of course, like the sad girl archetype has been, has been used by like, you know, um, mainstream feminism in a variety of ways. But it's like now it's um, like in, in a way, I guess it used to feel like a fuck you to society kind of like um, like there's this line in Girl Interrupted. I'm like, I'm going to try to like paraphrase it. But basically it's something along the lines of like, um, you know, you like by being mad, by like being sad, you didn't have to do anything. Like you didn't have to look for a job. You didn't have to get married. You didn't have to serve anyone. You could just like be sad and stay at the hospital and, you know, eat your food and take your pills. And that's all that was required of you. So it was like a way of like taking yourself out of the system and, you know, protecting yourself from the world. And there's like a whole thread throughout the whole book about how the world is, you know, like dangerous and the hospital protects you from the outside world and stuff. And it's like, so it was, it was kind of like a protest, like a personal sort of little, yeah, protest and like a fuck you to society. But it's like now it's just been so, it's become so large and so depersonalized that it's just a market nation. Maybe maybe that's a good thing because at the end of the day, like as you said in the beginning, it's like you can only be a sad girl for so long until you actually drive yourself crazy. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's a good thing. I mean, I definitely think to some extent it's still being a sad girl still is a way to try to get out of society. I mean, with my year of rest and relaxation, you know, that book that just recently came out, like yeah. all these girls now want to like tweet about wanting to be in a coma and stuff and how that's a dream. And it's like basically the same thing as wanting to be in a mental hospital. It's like you want to remove yourself from all of that. Right. But uh, I mean, I guess COVID in a way kind of provided that for people, but then not really because you're still online, right? So it's not like you're actually removed from it. It's not you're actually asleep. I mean, my year of rest and relaxation is an interesting one because I guess it's kind of like a logical continuation of like Girl Interrupted and the Bell Jar and like Prosignation Mm -hmm. and stuff. It's just like the logical conclusion of that kind of literature. Um, But, and it's interesting that like the, their narrator of that book makes the conscious decision to remove herself from society while the other ones kind of have to really go to the extreme and drive themselves mad enough, you know, like try to commit suicide in order to be admitted and like removed. Yeah. 
it definitely is a different way of going about doing it. What do you think of like, um, just because a lot of people talk about the bell jar as like basically a piece of like feminist literature. Do you think it's explicitly written in that way or that it just kind of, you know, became that way because of the context? I I mean, I don't know much about Sylvia Plath's views as a feminist or even if she identified ever. But I think because of the context, it became that way. I mean, she was this woman dealing with, well, do I become a writer? Do I become a mother? And like, you have all of these options. And back then you really had to choose just one. I mean, you couldn't do everything. And in one of the articles that you shared, um, it mentions that it shows her sense of terror about the consequences of becoming herself. And like that makes it very much feminist. Like out of all, all of these things, what do I choose to become in such a limited world? I mean, she has this whole metaphor that she uses throughout the, uh, throughout the book uh, about like tree branches and like, um, like leaves and the fact that every tree branch represents like a different pathway that she mm-hmm. can take. And one of them is like yeah, having a family. Another one is becoming a professional woman in the city, becoming a writer, becoming a poet, becoming a professor, you know, yeah. killing yourself and like <laughs> driving yourself mad, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, yeah, I guess, I guess the context shapes it. But it's just, again, to like go back to the article about having the bell jar used as like a prop in movies. I think it's just interesting that the book has almost like been taken out of, any real context of like someone struggling, you know, with <laughs> just like insanity and like, you know, the, the sort of like extremities of life and death and all those other things and just been turned into like basically like a feminist, I don't know, symbol that can be used on and off because it's like the characters in those movies, like um, I think some of the ones that the article mentions are like um, 10 Things I Hate About You and like, you know, just like comedies for the most mm-hmm. part, or like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and like Heathers and whatever else. And it's like the way that it's used is not really about sadness. It's like not meant to represent the character's sadness. It's meant to represent the character's sort of like, you know, defined feminist nature and how she, yeah. you know, whatever. So it's like it's almost been taken away from sad girls. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like it is used like such a prop. And like in 10 Things I Hate About You, she's very much the edgy feminist, not very depressed at all. But she's seen reading the bell jar because, of course, she's quirky. She's different. What else would she be reading? And it really kind of dismisses it because the bell jar was so important, both in a feminist way and showing like women's struggles mentally. Right. The girl, inter- girl Interrupted, I guess, is not really... Like, it's funny. No one really talks about the book ever, really. It's yeah. like... Everyone knows the movie, though. Everybody mm-hmm. knows the movie. And I think the movie is just... Honestly, if I were Susanna Case, I'd be so mad. Because the way that they the movie makes the character of Susanna herself seem is like a whiny, like, you know, ungrateful little, like, spoiled brat. Well, as in reality, like, the way that she functions as a narrator in her own memoir is very different. Like, she's very self-aware and if anything like very defiant and like you know the the whole book basically ends with her like uh dismissing the bpd diagnosis while as in the movie she just turns into this like little girl being like oh yeah like um you know i am sick i'm gonna get better i got better like that kind of thing which is just like like in true hollywood nature 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that movie adaptation, it really, it really is something else. I mean, I think without the movie, the book would never have been romanticized like it was online. Like you've got all those gifts floating around and like girls talking about like, oh, do you, are you a Daisy? Are you a Lisa? Like all because of the movie. Nobody's read the book really. Yeah. I actually didn't know that was floating around, like the whole Daisy, Lisa, Susanna thing. I, I saw it more on Tumblr back in the day. But the, yeah, I'm, I swear to God, there must have been like a personality quiz. Like, who in Girl Interrupted <laughs> are you? <laughs> That's funny. It's funny though as well, because like the characters are completely different in the book. Or like, I guess the real people that the book talks about are very different from the characters in the movie. But it's like... And Susanna Heeson's still alive, so it must have sucked yeah. for her to, like, watch the movie afterwards and being like, oh, okay, this is the way that they chose to depict me. It's like, um, I think I sent you that article as well. It's like a review of the movie from, like, 1999 when it first came out. And literally, it's so funny, like, um, wait, I'm going to find this. Like, the way the guy who wrote the article, the article is called um, Girl Interrupted. Girl interrupts it. Stop your whining, little girl. And the whole piece is basically about how, like, when a writer is like completely, you know, insufferable in the film, and it's just like you see her like sad eyes, and you know, like nothing really happens to her, and and whatever else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, rewatching the film, like, it didn't really even seem like she was the main character at all. I know it's all through her eyes, but. Out of all the girls in the hospital, she is by far the least interesting. Yeah, she's also like the least, you know, emotional, which is weird yeah. considering the fact that she's supposed to have VPD, which basically means that you're, you know, <laughs> very emotional. Yeah. But she's just kind of, yes, yeah, she's just kind of seen sitting around and smoking and like <laughs> sometimes she cries like in the corner. That, that's it. That's the only thing she does in the film. Um, yeah. I first learned about BPD through that book, actually. And when I looked more into it, I was like, I don't, she doesn't seem like she has it at all. Like, yeah. And part of me was like, oh, well, maybe the diagnosis, like, kind of it's changed because that she was in the hospital in, like, what, the 60s? Yeah, like late 60s, like 68, I think. It just seems very different from, like, the BPD girls we know now who are very much emotional. But I mean, I guess. that's why she sort of dismisses her diagnosis at the end of the book because she really she seems too logical and like too put together to like really I guess the idea is that she uh quote-unquote recovered in the hospital but like now again the definition of BBD has changed so much that it's like you can't recover from it anymore it's like a lifelong disease it's like it is funny to like see the way we perceive madness and like mental illness change over the years because when I was reading the bell jar and I you know I read Girl Interrupted and the bell jar back to back like one after the other and it's like I was reading the bell jar and I was like she seems more BPD than Susanna Kaysen like she truly is completely insane and she doesn't seem very depressed either because oh sure she falls into like a deep hole when she returns home from New York but like Mm -hmm. but the whole thing she's just like very judgmental and very emotional it's just like kind of running around and whatever but yeah it just doesn't seem very BPD but then um I mean, I guess everyone, almost everyone has BPD now. It's like every other person you see on the internet. Yeah, self-diagnosing is definitely out of control. I mean, I see it on TikTok all the time where people are self-diagnosing with like these very complex disorders. 
and it's <laughs> it is incredibly bizarre is um, but do you think bizarre. there's but do you think they're actually self-diagnosing or that that like you know the psychiatric uh whatever institutions just decided to uh diagnose anyone with bpd because a lot of them like i know a lot of people who uh have bpd allegedly and they've all been like professionally diagnosed and stuff and it just seems very you know improbable like i don't think statistically it makes absolutely no sense yeah definitely i mean it is a very rare thing to have and it does seem like everybody does have it but part of it i think is a lot of psychiatrists you tell them what symptoms you're having you don't need to prove and they'll just say, oh, yeah, that sounds like this. Like, you really don't need proof at all most of the time. That's true. Yeah. But then it's also, like, the the, the symptoms of BPD are just so incredibly, like, broad. And I've talked about this on this podcast before, but it's genuinely just, like, you know, being overly emotional. Like, uh, you know, being needy. Like, fear of abandonment. And it's, like, that's literally 99% of people especially yeah. now and things are so hard and complicated aren't just like out of control. So it just seems like something that's just like, yeah, like anyone could be diagnosed with that. Yeah. And I mean, for people who do genuinely have it, it does seem like a very, very tough disorder to have, but also it seems like psychiatrists just use it as a catch-all like, Oh, you don't quite fit into these categories. So let's call you BPD. And Suzanne, I think kind of talks about that and girl interrupted. Like, oh, it's a borderline between, like, what and what, you know? Yeah. I mean, it like, um, in the 60s, I guess the definition was that it was, like, a borderline between psychosis and neurosis and, like, anything, you know, like, the disorders that were on either end of the spectrum, like, when you didn't fit into that, you were borderline. You were on the border between those two things. And I guess now it's, like, the definition has changed so much. It's more, like, about, uh, like, borderline doesn't even have anything to do with it anymore. It's just, like... Um, the contemporary definition that I was able to find is something along the lines of like, um, sorry, I just, I wrote so many notes. It's like all over the place now. Oh yeah. Um, BPD afflicted individuals seem to be born with a quick and undully sensitive emotional trigger. Like, what does that mean? I, I really don't know. (laughs) Like what's a, you know, what's a undeveloped emotional trigger like it doesn't it literally makes no sense and I think and you know like apparently only two percent of the population are afflicted by BPD so it's either like everyone in our niche of Twitter you know (laughs) is in those two percent or like there's something statistically wrong so um yeah I don't know it is funny but it is also funny that like girl interrupted you know, the most famous, like, BPD piece of literature was written by a woman who most probably doesn't even have BPD. So... (laughs) Yeah, it's very ironic. Totally. So, um, what do you think of... Let's just talk about the movie. What do you think of Girl Interrupted as a movie? I mean, it's not, like... It's not the most amazing movie I've ever seen. I do appreciate it. I think it can't be very funny. There's bits in it where it is funny, even though it's a movie that deals with such drastic mental illnesses and some characters like Lisa. Um, I think the characters are all very fun. These aren't the words I would like to be describing a movie that deals with such a serious thing, but they are. It's funny. It's fun. 
I just don't take it seriously at all, though. Did you used to take it seriously? Yeah, very seriously. Oh my gosh, what these girls are going through, what Susanna is going through, like she's so different, she's so misunderstood. And now it's like, the movie kind of treats the book like a joke in a way, I think. Yeah, it kind of does. It kind of really does. (laughs) Lisa, she's a sociopath, which is very, very serious. And she's made out to be this manic pixie dream girl. And it's like, well, that's awesome. (laughs) That's so great to teach young girls. I mean, in a way, I guess everyone in that film is a manic pixie dream girl. Like, literally all of them. Regardless of the mental illness. Which I guess kind of coincides with the, you know, the definition of manic pixie dream girl, which just basically means mentally ill and, like, slightly obscure interests. But, um, no, I mean, the film is just so... It is kind of like a parody of the book. Because the book is also, like, it's not just a straightforward memoir. Like, she jumps back and forth in time. She uses, like, a variety of, like, metaphors to, like, talk about her experiences and talk about, like, madness in general, you know, like, and and in a way, yes, it is a borderline memoir in a sense that it deals with, like, the border between sanity and insanity. More so than just, like, any other thing. Because she basically, like, questions your preconceived notions of, like, madness and you know all these things that we kind of have we think we have a solid idea of but in reality you know like once you actually sit down to think about these things or like you know you have someone question it you don't actually know what any of that means and the film kind of like in the beginning I guess it tries to question that as well like you know the opening scene where they're like you know trying to pump her stomach because um the film basically become begins with her like suicide attempt and like she narrates it in something along the lines of like you know um you know have you ever you know have you ever questioned the laws of physics or whatever like something corny like that yeah and it's like you know and, and if you have like does that mean that you're mad and that kind of thing and I think that's just yeah <laughs> it's just pretty funny one thing I did like about the book, though, is, um, and it's in the movie, too, when she mentions, like, mental illness or however she describes it, it's just me, are you amplified? And it brings up a good point, like, at what point does your normal emotions become, like, mental illness? Because being sad is normal, and being manic, not so much manic, but being, like, overly happy and overly excited, that can be normal. So at what point does it just become, like, a mental illness? Right. But I guess the sort of the conclusion that she comes to, at least in the book and in the movie, less so, because the movie is basically like a, like a propaganda piece for like mental yeah. institutions and like the psychiatric profession. But like in the, in the book that she kind of comes to the conclusion that like, you know, like you're mad when you decide that you're mad ultimately. And yeah. it's like, like you're mad when you decide to like admit yourself to a mental hospital you're like mad when you know you decide you want to be mad basically because by the end of the book most of the characters and in the film I guess as well like most of the characters get out of that place so it's like it's more so like if you yeah you like make the conscious decision to go insane because it suits you or it doesn't suit you or you know just happens so yeah and I mean definitely now a lot more people are deciding that they are going to be mad. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess in a way that's almost like understandable because like, it's kind of like you said in the beginning, like um, 
like the idea of a static girl is really like an aesthetic idea. It's like an aesthetic framework through which you can see the rest of your life. And the same goes for madness, really. Like it's kind of like it gives you a way to live your life. Like it's, you know, like once you admit that you're mad, like once you go on medication, like once you admit yourself to a hospital, like once you do all these things, it's kind of like the goal of your life becomes to stay sane, right? It like gives you a very particular path to follow. And like now everything just feels so uncertain and like so chaotic that like having any path, even if that path is a path that's frowned upon by most people that feels good and secure enough for a lot of people, right? Because it's like, at least that's something, at least that's more than like the uncertainty that we all kind of face now with, you know, everything that's happening in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least you have something. Yeah, totally. And I think it's also like, I think insanity and like going crazy kind of provides you with like a narrative, right? Because it like gives you a very particular way to talk about your life. It gives you like very particular words and very particular sort of preconceived notions of like how your life is going to look from there on. Like once you decide you're mad, this is what your life is going to be. And I think it's kind of like, in a way, like our desire for to have a narrative and have a way to talk about our life has influenced everything about how we have built our society. Because it's like, it's almost like we made everything in a way that would drive the majority of people crazy. Like we want people to be sad because that's the only way that we can think of narrativizing and like talking about our experiences because sadness is ultimately like more intriguing, more interesting for people than happiness. It's like, I don't know. It's kind of like that Tolstoy quote. That's like, you know, like all family, all happy families are alike. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, like we hate like we hate that idea right like we hate the idea of sad of happiness in like the broader sense of the word because that means that we can't like there's nothing interesting about it we can't talk about it because it's boring <laughs> and we can't make movies about it we can't write memoirs about it because who wants to hear about happy people yeah yeah i mean definitely it seems like the only way to be interesting is to have something wrong in your life which i don't think is totally true it's just such a good fallback like if I'm not interested in these ways well at least I can be like this yeah it's like a very easy way to make yourself interesting yeah but it's gotten to the point where you know these things aren't that interesting anymore like at least if you're online in certain circles it seems like it very much is the norm totally yeah no yeah I mean everyone's mentally you know, unstable. Like it's not like it almost like, yeah, like it's kind of like, yeah, being a sad girl is no longer revolutionary. It's just boring. It's like everyone's a sad girl. Even men are sad girls now. Oh definitely. (laughs) Everyone's just miserable and depressed and there's just nothing interesting about it anymore. And I don't think like by this point, I don't think it's only online even. I think that's like everywhere. It's like spread everywhere. Like, if you, like, live in a big city, you know, you go to a party and, like, everyone's insane. It's like, what's what's oh, so yeah. fun about that anymore? So, uh, no, I think you're totally right. It's boring. It is. <laughs> in a way, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's not to, like, you know, I don't want to, like, qualify my statements, but obviously I'm not saying that, like, you know, mental illness isn't serious. It is, and you should seek help, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, like, you know, like... 
it's boring. Like, sorry. And I think that's kind of like a good thing for people to hear in a way, because I think it's still such an easy framework to like lean on and fall into. Yeah. I think it is better for it to be boring because when I was younger and it was seen as something interesting, it's like, Oh, well then I want to be that way. Like I knew so many girls where it's like, okay, all of us can't be like this. (laughs) And it's like, no, you just become mentally ill because you see so many other people doing it and you see it romanticized everywhere. And now it's kind of like the norm. So hopefully less people will be so compelled to label themselves that way in the future. Yeah. And like slowly drive themselves insane by like indulging themselves in like these behaviors, because it's like, you know, I've talked about this before, but it's like this idea that it's like, you know, it's actually good to like take mental health days and like do all these things. And like, yeah, maybe one or two, but it's like, once once you make that the norm you know once you make it the norm to like stay in bed for days at a time because you're too sad to get up and once you like make that the acceptable sort of standard for everybody like (laughs) that's it that's over you're done like you're never gonna crawl out of that if people are not making you crawl out of that because it's just too comfortable it definitely is comfortable I mean as somebody who's like dealt personally with this before it is such a crutch to fall into And, like, if people are encouraging of it and, like, oh, yeah, this is okay. Like, you need those people in your life to tell you, like, no, this is not normal. And, like, you may really, may really be dealing with these feelings and it's awful, but you need to find a way out of it. Like, you can't lean into it anymore. Right. Yeah. And I think that you also need to have someone in your life who tells you that it's actually not that pretty. Exactly. It's, it's really not that pretty. I mean, I don't care what Pinterest tells you. It's not. Yeah, it's actually not that aesthetic to, like, be miserable all the time. Like, yeah, like, it's, I guess it's pretty cool to, like, be melancholic sometimes and, like, stare out of the window and, like, do all these, you know, like, very aesthetic, depressing things. But it's, like, if you stay in bed for, like, three days at a time and you don't take showers and, you know, you don't brush your hair, you're going to look disgusting. Like, no matter how sad you are. (laughs) Yeah, it gets ugly very quickly. And, like, I'm all for melancholy. And, like, maybe having that view on the world. But I feel like you don't have to be melancholic and depressed. Like, you can still enjoy life and still see it as something else. Totally. Yeah, I mean, you can totally, like... Yeah, you can enjoy, like, the darker aspects of life without, you know... (laughs) Without, like, being an antidepressant. Like, those two are not necessarily interconnected. They don't have to be. No, you can totally appreciate all of that. I mean... You don't have to be like this person that's just like, oh yeah, life is life is all happiness and good all the time. Like you can see the bad and you can appreciate it and still be okay. Yeah. I mean, you can even like, cause you know, there's this idea that like by depicting like sadness and like mental illness, madness, blah, 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 all of that, like on in like art and film and stuff, you're romanticizing it for the audience. And in a way, yeah, I guess so. But it's not really like the, you know, the artist's like responsibility to influence the way people think about it. It's like, and I think you can, you know, you can watch movies like Girl Interrupted and you can like, you know, read the bell jar without becoming crazy. Like that's not, Like, you can like those things even without completely, like, intertwining your whole identity with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think there definitely is an issue of, like, 
what you like becomes your identity and like oh i like these things i love these sad depressing things so i must be sad and depressing like you really don't have to be and yeah goes for like people who are like oh well i want to be an artist and all great artists are mad and depressed it's like you don't have to be at all yeah but also there are like different ways of being mad right like you can be mad in a variety of different ways and doesn't necessarily mean you have to be admitted to a mental hospital and you have to like you know i don't know (laughs) do whatever and it's like and i think ultimately like but i think people lean into it so much because it is such an easy thing to fall into like it's just kind of always there and it's very in all the frameworks and like all the ways of seeing the world for this lens have already been established so really all you need to all you really need to do is like just you know just say it out loud just say that you're crazy just say that you're you know that you're struggling and all these people are gonna like you know pop up all around you and they're gonna be like oh yeah okay you're struggling like this is what you have to do this is how your life is gonna be from now on and it's like and you have you know like how many like mental hospital stay memoirs have been written by this point like literally thousands (laughs) yeah and like i think susanna is one great example of this is like she she tried to commit suicide like she obviously was going through something but she realized that she didn't have to be this way like not saying mental illness is a choice because it's definitely not for most people but she decided like you know i don't have to be this way i can just make a distinguishment between myself and my illness and i don't have to like if a psychiatrist says you have BPD, you don't always have to have BPD. Totally. Yeah. And she also like, um, like the whole, because even her suicide attempt, like it's presented as very serious in the movie, but in the book, she almost makes fun of it because she talks about how, like there's this one character, she's both in the film and in the book. I literally do not remember her name at all, but it's the one who tried to like burn herself alive yeah yeah and and there's this one bit in the book where she talks about that you know that girl and how you know like what goes through someone's head when they like you know try to light themselves on fire like how you know how extreme do you have do your feelings have to be in order to do that and she kind of contrasts that with her own experience of trying to kill herself which basically like in 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 the book like in reality because the book is you know a memoir she just took like 50 pills and then she walked into the street and she collapsed like, and she also called her mom and her boyfriend knowing that they were going to, you know, <laughs> rush yeah. out to help her. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that like her suicide attempt wasn't serious because, you know, who the fuck am I to say that? But it's like, it is at the end of the day, like she herself acknowledges that she didn't really want to die, that she thought she wanted to die. And then the moment she kind of took the step to do it, she realized that she didn't want to die. And her first, you know, her first thought was to like, look for help and ask for help. And and she kind of herself realizes the difference between that and, you know, actually lighting herself on fire, which just seems like incomprehensible. Like I've never heard of anyone committing suicide in a non-political way by lighting themselves on fire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like so many people have thought about, you know, killing themselves, but like, and the way that they want a way out and maybe they just don't want to die. They want, they want hope and they want to be, just taken out of society for a bit, you know, you need a break. And like, how else are you going to do that? It's, right. it's very hard. I mean, many of us aren't privileged enough to just like quit our jobs and check into a mental hospital. Like you have to do something to show people. 
Right, or like the narrator in my rest, uh, my year of rest and relaxation, who literally just like you know decides to like barricade herself in her apartment for a year. Like, who has who has the time or you know the the freedom to do that kind of thing? Literally, nobody. No, I mean for the average person, it's just not possible. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely not. But <laughs> but it is kind of interesting because, um, like, for the whole you know like. Carl interrupted in general is kind of seen is like kind of this like narrative of like this overly privileged like spoiled girl as well and I've read these theories online about how actually like the reason that she was um even admitted to McLean hospital or like it's claymore in the film is because her dad was um he was an MIT professor and he was also like an advisor to JFK and when she embarrassed her family by saying she wasn't going to go to college the only one from her graduating class at her like prestige uh prep school her dad decided that she was gonna like have to get out of the picture I mean I don't know if it's true or not it's just like you know some theories that exist online yeah I mean that would make sense to a point yeah (laughs) there's also um I mean, there's this whole, like, you know, subplot in, in the book and the film um, about how she even gets into the hospital. Like, the fact that she goes to see a doc, like, a psychiatrist or, like, a family friend, and he interviews her for 20, for 20 minutes and then decides that she has to be committed to a hospital for two years. Like, what, what does that even happen? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean... <laughs> I guess it really is just that easy. I mean, you can check yourself into a mental hospital at any time. But the whole thing about Girl Interrupted is she didn't realize she can't check herself out. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. But um, it's interesting because Sylvia Plath actually stayed at the same hospital. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Like the bell, like the hospital that she stays at um, in the bell jar is the same hospital as Susanna Kaysen. Wow. I... I haven't yet read a memoir where they stayed at a non-privileged mental hospital. I would read that. Yeah, I don't think that's I don't think that's a thing. I think all of them just like, you know, go to like, yeah, ultra expensive rehabs. Yeah, these very more glamorous places than what I've heard of. I mean, I've seen people online post about their time at mental hospitals and they're like, yeah, it's disgusting. And like, it's not a place you want to be at. It's not a place to be romanticized. Whereas then when you read Girl Interrupted, you're like, oh, that seems like a, a vacation in a way. No, totally. I remember being like 13 and reading it and being like, you know, this is this is what I need for my, you know, for, for my life. So I, I, so I have stories to tell because it does seem oh, totally. very, very chill. <laughs> yeah. And I definitely think that is because she went to a more privileged place than most people. I mean, yeah. I mean, she talks about that. She's very open about it. That's the great thing about A Girl Interrupted. She, I think, in the book, she does not romanticize her, you know, experience at all. She's very, like, critical and sarcastic about it. You know, like, she totally understands, you know, what it was that landed her in the hospital, like, you know what was great about it what was bad about it what she got out of it you know like the fact that she's writing this book and so on and it's like um and I guess it's very different from Sylvia Plath's story because you know Susanna Case is still alive she's like in her 80s but she's still alive and Sylvia Plath famously did not end very well so um and I guess that kind of changes like the context in which we see it as well yeah I mean, she can't really speak on it. She never had the chance. It was published after her death. Yeah. 
No, and it's funny to like read the Belgar, like you totally understand that the character is like, you know, es- Esther Greenwood is Sylvia Plath. There's no like there's yeah. no question about it. She, you know, she comes from the same town as Sylvia Plath. You know, she has the same internship, she has the same experience, she stays at the same hospital, like she doesn't try to hide it. It's basically a memoir yeah. with like some, you know, she changed some days, she changed like some, you know, she um described some of the characters differently or whatever in like an unpleasant light but it's ultimately just like her story and you know it ends in a relatively positive note of her being the one who survives the whole experience but like at the end you know that she doesn't yeah definitely I mean even if in real life she did feel like she got out of it she somehow got back there because she's no longer with us yeah there's um like an afterword in my copy of the Belgar that um, basically talks about like there's a reference to Sylvia Plath's diaries and how when she you know when Ted Hughes and her separated and she moved to London alone she wrote in her diary about how um like she was feeling that she was once again under the Belgar like she used that term so it is kind of yeah no it's it's very sad to like think of it in that context you think uh, Ted Hughes is to blame? I mean, he definitely is partially to blame, I think. I don't know <laughs> super in detail that much about them, but him burning her journals, like that just, what were you hiding? He said it was to protect the kids, but that just doesn't. Was it? Was it, Ted? Was it really to protect protect the kids? And with his other partner doing the same exact thing, it's like either you really have an eye for these types of girls or you're setting something off in them. (laughs) Suicide suicide can never, like, totally be blamed on another person. But, like, to a point, you do add to it. I mean, when two of your wives gas themselves, (laughs) that's... Also, they use the same method, you know, like that's also saying something. Yeah, at that point, did he like leave them instructions? Like, it's the same way. I mean, I haven't heard of many people doing that. Yeah, it's a very unusual way to kill yourself. I guess it was more common in the past because now who even has gas ovens, right? Oh, like, yeah, it's all electrical. Sure. Like, yeah. but still, but still, it's very suspicious. I said, this is one bit in the Belgar that I think is very funny, you know, like uh, Buddy Willard the like the boy you know whatever the future doctor that she goes out with and then her friend the one who ends up killing herself at the end of the book also goes out with the same guy and at the by the end like when uh, you know when she gets out of the hospital buddy willard and her he like picks her up from the hospital and they're standing by his car and talking and he's like you know like esther do you think do you you think it's something about me that drives women mad and it's kind of (laughs) Um, so I think, you know, it's either like foreshadowing (laughs) or, or, um, you know, maybe Ted Hughes put that part in there. Just as a little hint. Maybe, maybe, maybe he did. I mean, we don't know what he did with those, you know, that manuscript. You have no way of knowing. But I definitely do think Sylvia Plath's own life definitely added to the romanticization of the bell jar because like everybody... Every young, depressed girl wanted to be Sylvia Plath. I mean, she was a famous writer, even if it was after her death. And she, her writing was so beautiful. It was beautifully written, which I didn't think helped at all. Like, reading her writing, I'm like, wow, this is so sad, but, like, so beautiful. 
no wonder yeah. people romanticize it no it's absolutely beautifully written and her poetry is beautiful as well like ariel just the whole you know they're so raw and like feminine in a way that almost nothing is yeah like so very like it's so funny because now we live in this like very like female centric world but it is the idea of the feminine like in a very masculine way like it has nothing to do with like you know genuine feminine like female emotions so it's like you know like you know we we have women in charge but like are they really women <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah. are they really like because none of those emotions are like you know i think ultimately anything truly feminine if you have something feminine that means that teen girls can relate to that and if teen girls cannot naturally relate to it that means that it's not actually that feminine at all yeah yeah i totally get what you mean <laughs> so it's like you know and the fact that so many you know the fact that teen girls are so drawn to sylvia plath and are so drawn to the bell jar and her poetry and like just her as a figure in general just means that like that's that is that is as raw as femininity gets in you know in terms of art yeah I think she captures it really well and I mean as a teen girl in like the 2010s if I can relate to something that was written so before my time like I think that really says something about her writing and like she really is timeless even if it, the bell jar has been kind of made into this prop for people like it is really a work of art I think no, absolutely. Yeah. Once you get past, you know, the famous cover, I guess there are multiple famous covers, but you know what I mean? Like once you get yeah. past the cover, like the idea of the book itself and actually delve into the writing, you, you know, if anything, that's an underrated book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it's really because it is seen as kind of you know it, it's kind of like uh it's, you know the whole like catcher in the rye discourse that's happening right now <laughs> just that literally happens every other week like i swear if i see someone talking about the catcher in the rye again i i'm going off twitter i can't do it anymore but it's like you know like the bell jar is kind of the catcher in the rye for for women and that yeah. you know it's just seen as this like symbol of you know adolescence and whatever else but it's like it's it's much more than that yeah and in my opinion sylvia Plath's character esther is way less insufferable than holden coffee <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah i mean i like holden you know i'm yeah. I'm, a, I'm a catcher in the rye apologist and i think <laughs> it's a great book and holden is very relatable even to me but like <laughs> Even if he is a little bit of an insult, but I think everyone kind of realizes this by this point. No one is even denying that. Like, he totally yeah. is. Which is, like, fine, you know? Like, that's, you know, that's that's good. Yeah, I mean, what's wrong with being an incel, yeah. honestly? Yeah, nothing, exactly. We all just want love and <laughs> friendship and companionship. So, I get you, Holden. But, like, I think... <laughs> but, it's, I, but it's really hard to see the catcher in the rye, you know, like as anything but the symbol that it now is because yeah. when somebody because it is a good book but like now whenever anyone mentions the catcher in the right have the same reaction as when someone mentions the virgin suicides like yeah. i just sort of shudder because it's just so overdone and so overused and it's like or the great gatsby which is also a great book but like you know if somebody tells me that their favorite book is the great gatsby <laughs> i just you know 
Yeah, it just tells me that you haven't read a book since high school. Like, you're like, this is my book, and that's it. Yeah, which is sad. Like, I feel, you know, like, I do really like Fitzgerald. Like, um, he's one of my favorite writers. So I feel really bad for what has been done to his legacy. But, like, you know, it's so overdone. So I hope they never, you know, make the bell jar uh, require reading in any class because yeah, just it would kill it completely. For sure. <laughs> it's funny though that Girl Interrupted hasn't had the same effect in terms of its literary merit because I, if anything I think it's just as well written as The Bell Jar or Persignation yeah I don't know why so many people don't read it I mean maybe because the movie is just so much more accessible like oh I guess Persignation did have a movie I personally haven't seen it Oh, that's interesting. Gisha, it's a good movie. You really should watch it. Yeah, I don't know why Girl Interrupted just never caught on as well as the others did. I don't know. Maybe it is because Susanna, as a narrator in the book, is just much more self-aware. Yeah. (laughs) And it's kind of like looking in the mirror. And I didn't notice that when I read the book for the first time when I was like 13, 14. But like now reading it, I was like, oh shit, you know, she really, you know, she really knows what she's talking about. I feel very, (laughs) you know, I feel very seen, not in a good way. And it's like, because it's sort of like, because Girl Interrupted as a book exposes Girl Interrupted syndrome very well. Yeah. And and makes fun of it (laughs) by just existing. I mean, I definitely don't think a lot of people want Girl Interrupted syndrome exposed like that. They don't want to be called out for what it is. Yeah. Yeah, which I guess, I mean, I do feel bad for, like, teen girls now because, you know, they're just kind of redoing what we did in the early 2010s, like, the whole Tumblr thing with, like, you know, like, just the Arctic Monkeys and, like, all that thing. Like, it's just being done all over again, and it just feels so incredibly sad to witness it. And even, like, Olivia Rodrigo is, like, basically, like, you know, like... I don't know, like a weird copy of like Hole and Avril Lavigne, like <laughs> mashed together. Yeah, I mean, it's been going on for so long. Like it's, there's always different people that are the main figures of the movement, the sad girl movement, but it just keeps repeating itself over and over again since like, I don't know when. I feel like it really took off in the 90s with these like memoirs and with like Hole. And then in the 2010s with like Tumblr, which Tumblr is still around, and that's crazy to me. Right. I mean, yeah. So sometimes I go on there and I'm just like, it just feels like a ghost of its former self. It's very depressing to be on there. It's very calming and like, it's very chill compared to other social media platforms, but it is very depressing to just see it in its current form, which, you know, has none of its former appeal, basically. It just has like, videos and photos here and there and it's like it's a nice place to like steal photos from but like as a you know (laughs) but as a you know as a platform itself it's very much dead it feels like a graveyard of like yeah like old you know you have like old threads and like old themes just kind of like being recycled over and over again and they were always recycled on there because that's what the platform was about but like the way it is done now it just feels incredibly incredibly depressing yeah and I feel like now more than ever TikTok is like recycling over those themes like 
on Tumblr when the whole big like nymphette thing was around. That's all over oh, TikTok yeah. now. And it's so bizarre to me because it's like things have never changed. Adolescent girls are still doing the same exact thing. Yeah, but now they're documenting it and like sort of exposing themselves by doing it, you know? Like the one thing, the one thing about being a sad girl, you see, you should never post about it. You should just, you know, you should post about it anonymously on Tumblr. You should never post about it anywhere else because if you post about it anywhere else, it just looks incredibly bizarre. When it's taken out of its, you know, logical context of like your diary or Tumblr, it just looks baffling and uncomfortable for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's very bizarre now because the girls redoing all of this, they now use like sometimes their full names, which was unheard of on Tumblr. Like you would never ever do that because it was basically an anonymous diary that you shared with everybody. But now it's like you're being yourself and sharing it too. Yeah. No, it is incredibly bizarre. I did a pro Anna episode recently and we kind of touched oh. on that. <laughs> no, I said like, you know, the episode wasn't pro Anna. It was about yeah. pro Anna to like be more, you know, specific. But like we kind of talked about it on that episode as well. Like the fact that it's so bizarre that now we have all these like anorexic girls sharing their diets on YouTube with their full names and their faces in the frame. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, are you begging to be hospitalized? Well, I had no idea that was on YouTube. Oh my gosh. It is. Yeah. People are like posting, you know, what, what I eat in a day's and anorexic videos. It's incredibly bizarre. That is so strange. I mean, ProAnna was definitely big <gasps> on Tumblr, but like, once again, everybody was anonymous. Nobody knew each other. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was literally just like, it was exactly what it would have felt like to be uploading like you know diary pages onto the internet it was just so like yeah it was so anonymous and it was so like safe and it doesn't feel like that anymore so I feel really sorry for like teen girls now who are you know left with like Instagram accounts where they get to post you know Dasha memes like it's sad yeah I mean now that's going to be that's going to be connected to your actual image not your anonymous image but your actual who you are and that's just very I wouldn't want to have to deal with that in 10 years I mean I guess I'm kind of shooting myself in the foot here because I'm doing a podcast about all of this stuff and it's going to be associated with my name forever too but like um I comfort myself by saying that it's kind of like critiquing it but I don't know maybe it's the same thing who knows but like it is kind of yeah it's funny. It is very, very uncomfortable to think about. Yeah, especially since they're so young and doing this. I don't think when you're young and talking about all these things, you don't realize how you'll feel in even five years. Like if I still had my old Tumblr account up at this moment, I would die of cringe, honestly. <laughs> I would too. I would too. I would. Um, I used to post really sad emo poems on there. Very, <laughs> very silly of laugh inspired, obviously. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And then, you know, and <laughs> still, I think one of the most, one of the happiest moments of my life to this day is when one of my favorite Tumblr blogs reblogged one of those poems. 
<laughs> and I got so many new followers from that. And I just, you know, I just felt truly famous. And, you know, no, no matter how many Twitter followers I get, you know, no matter how many people talk about me now, nothing compares to that feeling of just being like sad and 13 and posting poems and somebody, you know, paying attention to your little Sophia Plath inspired poem. That was, that was my peak. I can never top that again. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I had... I wouldn't even call it a poem, but back then I did get reblogged a lot on Tumblr. And back then I was like, this is amazing. But now I'm like, if this ever resurfaces, I'm just going to delete everything. And like, you will never see me again. Yeah. No, I mean, to be fair, if that poem ever resurfaced now, I would probably genuinely disappear off the internet. I don't think I could handle it. But um, so, I mean, I guess in a way it's just, yeah. I mean, I guess it's understandable why people relate to Celia Plath so much, because to put yourself out there in such a raw way, like, how do you, how do you really live after that? I think it's just, I think there's something especially about like the way that women approach art and self-expression that is so confessional by definition. I think men manage to make great art by being abstract and the majority of female made art is so incredibly connected with their real lives and their real identities. It's almost like women have this need to like make their own lives into art in a very, in a very depressing way. It almost always ends in like suicide or murder or like something equally horrible. And like, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you manage to live your life after exposing yourself like that? And I don't know. I guess, I guess I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, at least they do it very well. I think women artists do confessional work very well. I never read anything from a man that has met my standards for it confessionally. Yeah, that's true. No, men cannot do confessional art. It just doesn't work. It always ends up being incredibly uncomfortable I went to this um Matthew Barney exhibition in London right before I moved away and um I love his art love his work but this exhibition just was it was like basically a man going for a midlife crisis and being very open about it and I just felt like I never wanted to engage with art less than I did in that moment when I was there with a friend of mine. And, you know, we were just like, you know, just two girls walking through this like large hole filled with like uh, copper paintings of like trees and watching this movie that he made about his time in like Alaska or something. And I was like, you know, I've never wanted, to, I've never felt less attracted to a man in my life. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but women just do it better really they like created that whole genre yeah yeah they really did women are women are really good at confessing our our sins and utmost desires and spreading it all across the world as well yeah spreading it all across the internet for everyone to see (laughs) splattered across all the social media platforms and all the different mediums but Hey, I mean, you know what? Like, if teenage girls can relate to your art, that's all that really matters. I think that's the biggest compliment you can get as a woman, like as a female artist. I think yeah. if you as a female artist make art that teenage girls cannot engage with, you are not a good female artist. <laughs> For sure, yeah. 
I mean, and teenage girls, they can be really tough critics too when it comes to art, I feel like. Maybe not in the way that art critics are critics, but. Well, yeah, because it has nothing to do with the art world or like the practice of art is like, you know, uh, institutionalized medium or form. It just has to do with really raw base emotions that you only really feel when you're going through literal physical changes as you grow older and you mature and, you know, your life changes in ways that you could have never predicted. And I think, but I think that's the difference between, you know, like critically acclaimed art and good art, which sometimes, you know, sometimes the two mean the same thing and sometimes they don't. And in case of female artists, they usually don't yeah. because, you know, because most critics are not teenage girls. Maybe they should be. <laughs> maybe they should be. Maybe they honestly should be. Yeah. Maybe we would have much better art out there. I mean, no, it's, it's still to this day, it's very baffling to me that they're only, you know, that despite everything, there are only like a number of good confessional memoirs and there's only a number of good, you know, movies made for women. Besides like Sofia Coppola and like Catherine Briart and stuff, like I can't name anyone who's really managed to like, you know, encapsulate and like depict the female experience in that kind of way. And it's like, like, why? Why is no one trying? I don't know. I mean, maybe we just have to wait a few more years and the next Sofia Coppola will come about. I think Greta Gerwig is trying. I mean, she's trying really hard, but she's yeah. failing very hard as well. Definitely failing very hard at it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to like Lady Bird so much. I just, you know, I thought that was going to be my movie. And then I watched it because a friend of mine had really like hyped it up. And I was like, okay, you know, like, this is going to be, this is going to be the new version. I'm so sad. And then it just, <laughs> and then it just wasn't. It was bad. It was a really, really bad movie. And I liked it for the first five minutes after I saw it. And then I thought about it for a little longer and I was like, yeah, you know what? No. Yeah. I also didn't really like Lady Bird. I mean, I don't know if it's just because I'm older now or what, but I also don't hear a lot of teenage girls liking Lady Bird as much as our generation loved the virgin suicides. I don't think she accomplished what she wanted to. Yeah. I don't think she did because I think it's too, because ultimately I think the teenage girl experience is very non-PC and trying to make it in a very sort of, you know, not political in an overt sort of way, but political in its context and its way of presentation doesn't really work. And the story of Lady Bird itself as a story of a teenager being self-aware enough to understand, because the way that the story is structured is basically like, you know, you have this girl and she's or like the way that it's filmed is basically you have this girl and she's a teenager going through all these things, but at the same time, she she's self-aware enough somehow to understand that her mom is still a good person, which just seems so bizarre to me because yeah. like just the way that the story is framed, it's like she's afraid to say, she's afraid to present Lady Bird as a selfish person almost. And that's when the movie doesn't really work because it doesn't quite go there. It doesn't quite go into that area was you know Sophia Coppola can do it yeah and yeah. so on Catherine Hardwick can do it Catherine Bayard can do it like all these people can do it but she just can't she wishes she could <laughs> maybe one day she'll come up with something better I don't know I hope they never let her adapt the bell jar because if they do that's going to be the end of it all it's going to kill sad girl culture <laughs> completely I think whoever adapts the bell jar 
like you know i don't count that maybe they came out in the 70s no one's seen you it know. that's bad it doesn't have anything to do with the book but you know whoever adapts the book and if it's a woman she's gonna be the best you know she's gonna be the most famous female artist of all times yeah i once read way back in the day that kirsten dunst was supposed to adapt it and i was so excited for that but that's never happening yeah i remember reading that as well that was like, like 2009 <laughs> still <Yeah>. hasn't happened <laughs> Well, whenever they do adapt it, it's going to be everywhere, all over teenage girls' socials. Yeah, the wave girls on Twitter are not going to be, are not going to, you know, are not going to survive it, honestly. They're going to beat it to death, honestly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's better be, like, pastel-colored on aesthetic. Yeah. It has to be. (laughs) I think whoever makes it knows that. I hope so. I really hope so. I hope they don't try to like, you know, make it too like politicized about like mental illness and whatever, the way that they kind of make everything now where it's just like, oh yeah, like, you know, with the whole story basically ends up being her stay at the mental hospital and how she was mistreated, even though she really wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Especially the one thing that I think is really interesting about the bell jar is the fact that like, you know, the story takes place in like what the forties and like, or like, yeah, like the early fifties and like, her stay at McLean Hospital or like the mental hospital, the asylum seems much more pleasant than Susanna's stay at the mental hospital, even though Susanna's stay is relatively pleasant as well. Like Celia's stay just honestly seems just like a hotel. Like she's just so chill. I know. I mean, if I could check in back then, wow. (laughs) Don't we all wish that though? It's a sad girl dream really. Yeah, to be able to go to the same mental hospital as Sylvia Plath in the 50s. <laughs> but then you have, like, you know, all these, like, horror stories, like, um, like even, like, American Horror Story Asylum that present, you know, mental hospitals as, like, these, you know, awful places of, like, mistreatment or whatever. But it seems mm-hmm. very, very chill. I mean, except for maybe the electroshock. Yeah, but then in the beginning, yes. But then when she goes for it, like, the later part in the book like it seemed relatively pleasant as well she just kind of goes to sleep mm-hmm. i thought the lobotomy thing in the book was pretty funny as well <laughs> like when she like has a friend who's had a lobotomy and she describes her as like just very like calm and mature <laughs> i love how lobotomies are kind of coming back like you see viral tweets every now again like, oh, I wish I had a lobotomy or if me and my girls are back in the 50s, we'd all have lobotomies. Like, <laughs> I mean, lobotomies themselves are not coming back, thank, you know, thank God. But yeah, oh, the desire no. for one, the desire for one is, you know, is an ever-present urge. I think for a lot of people, I mean, I've said that like at least a hundred times, you know, when something happens, you're just like, I wish I had a lobotomy. Yeah. It's such a joke at this point. Yeah, but it's horrible. I mean, the practice itself was like completely barbaric, but it's just like yeah. now it seems almost, you know, it seems, yeah, almost desirable, especially with like the combination of medications and this a lot of people are on. Like, that's like, like I saw somebody compare, you know, like, um, like the, the fact that so many people are like on, you know, antidepressants and SSRIs and like mood stabilizers and whatever, and like a combination, like a cocktail of different drugs, like to like a chemical lobotomy. I think that's maybe even like a medical term and it's like um I guess it is <laughs> there's just something about the ice pick that's just so alluring <laughs> yeah 
just seems like a very I don't know I guess it's like the history behind it you know like JFK's sister and all of that and like Frances Farmer even though she never actually had one <laughs> seems very romantic romanticizing the lobotomy for sure yeah that's 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 the you know that's the contemporary trends of today just romanticizing lobotomies and mental hospital stays and whatever i mean it's so funny like so many people i know have stayed at mental hospitals and stuff like you know who've been hospitalized i guess it's just or like even people i remember from like tumblr and stuff it's like it's almost like a badge of honor the way people talk about it it's like you know when i was at the mental hospital this and this happened and it's like get it you're cool i know I mean, if that's your defining feature, that's very, that's sad. It is sad, yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, I mean, I guess now that means nothing now because so many people have stayed in mental hospitals. That's literally, like, every other YouTube video that I have in my recommended but probably says a lot about my algorithm is just, like, you know, my staying in a mental hospital, and it's, like, okay. Well, the thing about mental hospital stays is I don't know if so many people could go without there's socials for that long anymore. That's true, but don't they give your 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 phone? Do they? But I don't know. Probably. I remember back on Tumblr, some people would take like week long breaks or like multiple weeks, and they'd come back and be like, "Oh, sorry guys, I was at the mental hospital." Like, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I just had this like very chill location, a uh, vacation, and you know, uh, <laughs> my local mental hospital. They were really nice to me. I, you know, I detoxed from social media. It was a, it was a great experience. Um, I don't know, but I think they, I think they let you have your phone now. Cause I saw, I don't know, maybe I'm imagining this, but I swear to God, I saw people like tweet from the mental hospital. Maybe it depends on the mental hospital. Maybe it was like a rehab when I was live tweeting from the mental hospital. Yeah. I'm surprised that isn't like a whole genre of like YouTube videos, you know, like when you like film a vlog at the mental hospital, I'm sure that's, that's going to come in the near future. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's all in the future, I guess. But it's interesting that, like, people talk about lobotomies in this way now because um, in Girl Interrupted, I don't know if it is in the film, but in the book, she has this whole bit about how, like, you know, haven't you, you know, like, when you're mentally ill or when you think you're mentally ill or the way that they define mental illness is basically, have you ever asked yourself, like, have you ever wished you were dead? Like, haven't you, like, told yourself that you were going to kill yourself when you missed a train or a bus or when you, like, were late to a meeting or whatever? And, you know, I, I remember, like, writing that down as a 13-year-old and being like, you know, this is proof of my mental instability because, uh, you know, I want to kill myself when I'm late to class. But, like, I do think that that's kind of just, like, the normal human experience by this point. For sure. I mean... You see a bus and you're like, oh, what if I just took a few steps? Yeah. Or like when you're, yeah, when you're like in the tube or whatever, like the metro and you're like, what if I just, you know, what if I just, what if I just? I mean, I think that's really just a human experience for most people. Yeah, I guess. At least in our Twitter nation. Well, I mean, you really can't joke about it on there anymore, though, without being suspended. Yeah, that's true. I saw some people say, um, I'm going to still be a plath myself a couple of times. <laughs> that works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's pretty, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> it, is, it is kind of like synonymous with suicide now. It is, it is very sad. Yeah.
Yeah, I mean, she's the number one person I think about when I think about it. There's many others, but she's the most iconic by far. Yeah, I mean, for women, definitely. I mean, men are a lot more violent about their suicide attempts, or I guess they're successful suicide attempts in general. Like, the way... I guess that's kind of where the stereotypes come from, that, you know, like, when women try to kill themselves, they don't actually want to die. Which I guess to a certain extent is true. Like... Especially if you look at these two books. <laughs> I mean, I once read that women do it in ways where they still look beautiful after, whereas men, like, they just shoot themselves. Like, yeah, that's true. I mean, Sylvia Plath talks about that in The Bell Jar as well, where she's, like, talking about, like, the different, you know, she's, like, contemplating different ways that she could kill herself, and she brings up the gun, and she's like, well, I've heard these stories of men, you know, of people, like, trying to blow their brains out, and then they just end up completely, like... <laughs> disfigured for the rest of their lives and they don't actually die because it actually takes a lot to pull the trigger on yourself in that way to actually you know manage to kill yourself and it's like yeah and it's like you know if you're a sad girl already like why would you why would you make it worse for yourself no if if you survived that I mean like the girl and girl interrupted like she survived and then she had to deal with that awful trauma of having these like awful burns all over her yeah but I guess the story never explains, though, like, if she actually tried her- to kill herself or if it was something else. Yeah. So we're kind of left to ponder. But, uh, yeah. No. It's also, I mean, Daisy's suicide in Girl Interrupted is very graphic. She both cuts her wrist and hangs herself. Wow. <laughs> And, you know, like, seeing Brittany Murphy in that role, it is very sad considering, like, you know, how she actually ended up in real life. But, like, in the book, Daisy's suicide is barely mentioned at all because she kills herself. Like, because, in like, in real life, Susanna and Lisa didn't actually witness her suicide. It's completely, like, out of the picture because in the book, Susanna never escapes the mental hospital. She just stays there for 10 years and then she... Sorry, two years. Um, and then she and then she gets out. Like, um, that's just, like, the Hollywood version of what happened. But, like, still. Still, yeah. It's very graphic in the film. They did play... Well, I don't know the name of the song, but it's a very melancholic, beautiful song that's playing while she's hanged yeah I'm like what a contrast that is because seeing her is not it's not beautiful in any way and I'm glad they didn't try to make it beautiful right no it's true yeah what do you think of the famous suicide scene in 13 reasons why oh my gosh I I binge watched that in one day because I was just very bored and I I knew what was going to happen in the end and I wanted to see how it all turned out I don't think it was as graphic as, I think it was graphic for Netflix, but overall, like, I've seen much, much worse. And, like, do I think more people tried to do it because they saw it? No, probably not. I mean, they probably would have seen other depressing material anyways. Like, the girls that were watching that were also probably seeing Girl Interrupted and the Virgin Suicides, you know? Yeah, definitely. No, absolutely. I actually thought that scene was incredibly ugly and, like, clunky and just like you know yeah (laughs) it was just like not a pretty scene like I can't imagine anyone like 
Yeah, I can't imagine like a suicidal person watching it and being like, okay, this is this is this is it. This is why I'm gonna do it. Because it's like sorry, go for it. I feel like most suicidal people also know and are well aware that that that's not an easy way to do it. Like odds are you're going to live. Especially when you have someone in the house as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like when, and then you know you're discovered like an hour later because you've left the run like the bath running and your mom yeah. comes upstairs like she wouldn't have died in real life there's no way she would have actually died that's the no, most unrealistic just, part about it just like cecilia lisbon like that's how she tried it and she she survived that time so yeah <laughs> exactly don't you know that's that's a bad way yeah i don't think it was as controversial as the media made it seem no, absolutely not. And as you said, like, you know, if you're depressed already and you're, you know, searching for the kind of media that represents depression and like mental instability and madness and, you know, suicidal ideations and all of these other different things, like, you know, chances are there's some reasons why first of all, not the first thing you're gonna watch. Second of all, no. it's not the you know, it's not that good to be the primary thing that influences you to do anything. Yeah. And like, it's just, it's a bad show. No one wants to die thinking of a bad show. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. And like, I don't really see it anywhere online. Like people aren't talking about it anymore. People barely talked about it then. I don't think that it was ever like a thing that depressed people were going after. It's very much a show about mental illness for non-mentally ill people i think it's like a psa this is what this is what depressed people do like blah 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 (laughs) you know this is how you should act around them this is how you should not act around them Mm -hmm. oops we showed a bad thing like it's very much it's very much like something you would see as like as an an announcement on tv and it's very strange that it's on netflix instead of cable television because i can't imagine you know I guess the only reason people watched it was because of the hype around it, but I can't imagine anyone, you know, stumbling upon it and being like, this is what I'm going to watch today. Like, this seems exciting. Like, it's just such an ugly thing to exist out there. And the fact that they made multiple seasons of it, I don't know many people that watched anything after the first season. And isn't there, like, three? I don't know. I didn't even watch the first season. I just watched the suicide. I just watched the suicide (laughs) scene on YouTube. That's all I've seen of the show I had friends like try to make me watch it and I I think I also like watched like the first episode of the second season or something but I just like I couldn't there's a BPD character in the second season oh wow yeah they really uh they really you know (laughs) drive the point home they really tried (laughs) well definitely you were so lucky to have not seen the whole thing (laughs) I mean, I can imagine it just seems incredibly ugly. And it's like, you know, like if anything, I think like, yes, sadness and, you know, madness and whatever is like an aesthetic framework, but, and that's bad and good at the same time, because on one hand, obviously it allows people to like dwell in their own feelings of miserable misery, but at the same time, it also, you know, it does kind of provide a more artful way of looking at your own pain and your own terrible experiences and you know aestheticizing romanticizing your pain is both good and bad at the same time but you know it's good to have the option to be able to do it and like yeah I mean I don't know 
this is one other thing that I wanted to bring up is um, my personal favorite quote from Girl Interrupted. Um, and it's basically like where Suzanne is talking about suicide and she says that suicide, suicide is a form of murder, a premeditated murder. And then she goes on to elaborate and I'm paraphrasing like something along the lines of like that successful suicide demands a clear state of mind that a lot of suicidal people actually lack. And that's why most suicides fail because people, you know, because their desires don't actually match with their level of mental stability and clarity to actually pull it off. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense because it is pretty hard to do, like to actually commit. It's easy to attempt. It's hard to commit. I mean, and when you're in that mindset, you don't think of all the things that you need to do. Like you think, oh yeah, I'll just, I'll cut my wrists like in 13 Reasons Why, but you don't think of how deep you have to go and all of that. And, but maybe it's a good thing that your mindset isn't where your desires are. So it's not committed. Right, it's like your own body is trying to prevent you from doing it. It's like yeah. our bodies have set up so many different levels of like, self-defense mechanisms that no matter how many times you know they even if you mentally want something to happen your body's not going to allow for it to happen because your instincts kick in and your you know your whatever self-protective mechanisms kick in and you are ultimately unable to do it like you can't and Sylvia Plath talks about that in the bell jar as well like where she tries to like strangle herself in bed and she talks about how like you know like right when you know right when I would reach that point where I could feel you know the life draining out of me my hands would just go limp and I couldn't do it anymore it's like our own yeah it's like you can't really ultimately do the act that easily yeah and I think that's overall a good thing I mean because then you still get a second chance Yeah, definitely. So it's kind of like no matter how many, you know, no matter how much you indulge yourself in your own feelings of misery and your own romanticization of like your sadness and mental instability, like your body wants to save you. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Susanna Kaysen is super glad that it didn't work for her, so. Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, she talks about that in the book, even like the fact that she basically tried herself, tried to save herself the moment she tried to kill herself. But yeah. the instinct was so, you know, brutal that the moment she swallowed those pills, she went outside and she called everyone she could to just, you know, not actually allow herself to go through with it, not actually allow herself to die. And it's like, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. But do you think, maybe that's like a, weird question but do you think that like ultimately like that sort of self-indulgence and romanticization and whatever else of mental illness is harmless because you can't actually cause yourself that much harm um maybe I think in some cases I mean some people do actually kill themselves so obviously not all the time but I think overall for me I mean yeah, it was pretty harmless. Like, it's kind of a phase you go through. And sometimes it's it's what you need to go through in, in order to grow up, you know, for some people. Like, it's just another phase of life. And 
it's not always super bad to experience. <laughs>